Hello, I'm Rob Forsyth. Welcome to Liberalism in Question. In this half-hour podcast series from the Centre for Independent Studies, we explore questions and challenges to liberalism today. My guest today is Henry Ergus. Henry is an economist. He's had a very broad and rich career, worked with the OECD, the Australian Trade Practice Commission. He has been involved with a number of of economists, many um, consulting firms. He's lectured in both here and overseas in both economics and areas of governments. And he speaks to me today from Paris. Welcome, Henry. Thank you. Let, let me dive in the deep end with you, um, because it's, it's a very hard, it's a difficult question for someone of your breadth of, of thinking, which is, what actually is, in your point of view, Henry, at the heart of the Liberal Project? Well, as you say, Rob, that's that's a very broad question. And let, let me begin by saying that at least in one sense, it's a slightly inconsistent question in that it would be very odd if there were such a thing as the liberal project. Right, right. Liberalism is by its nature uh, a a broad church, uh, and uh, as a result, there are many varieties of liberalism, and liberals broadly have historically pursued a number of different goals with somewhat different emphases, which is one of the reasons why if you say about someone that they're a liberal in the United States, that means something quite different (laughs) from what it means in Australia. And again, a liberal, for instance, in France or Italy, has slightly different connotations and emphases relative to being is, is, is there, is there any, in other places. Is, there, is there anything in but common, is, something in common between yes. them then? Yeah. Yes, I think there is. And in that sense, I, I think it's a, a reasonable question to ask. And to my mind, the, the way to address it is to go back, in some respects, to the historical roots of the notion of liberalism which I believe lie in trying to find a way in which we can live together without falling into civil war Mm. and to find an alternative to the Hobbesian solution to that problem. So Thomas Hobbes's famous solution to the problem of civil discord was essentially to construct Leviathan, the authoritarian state. Hobbes was writing the 17th century after, the, in the middle of the terrors of the of the of the English Civil War, Indeed. Yes, yes. and of the European wars of religion. Of course, so, of course, yes. Yeah. So, so for Hobbes, the alternative to society falling apart was effectively to delegate all power to a central entity, mm. the famously called Leviathan, which would be the body politic, and which would absorb the body politic. And in the famous cover image that he designed for Leviathan, there's a Leviathan, a giant, you were, and inside that giant are small bodies of all the people who make up the community. And so liberalism was historically the 
alternative to that. That is the way of avoiding a state of savagery without relying on the elimination of liberty. And, and that's really where its name comes from. And so that question of how do you do that? How do you construct a society in which that's possible? That's the heart of the liberal project. And it was necessary because of a breakdown in European society of old orders, in the, which resulted in these terrible wars in exactly. the... Uh, in the, in the Exactly. It, it was an alternative to uh, a society which was both extremely hierarchical, yes, uh, which and at the same time imposed severe constraints on the range of beliefs and attitudes and modes of conduct that could prevail within it. And as that broke down, partly under the impact of social change, partly under the impact of the Reformation, the problem of order became absolutely central. And liberalism is first and foremost a solution that attempts to reconcile order and freedom. And, and at its heart, how does it try and reconcile those two? Well, I think there's really two fundamental components to that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, one component is the notion of tolerance. That is that uh, there are many things that we don't need to agree about and that we can freely choose for ourselves and that by freely choosing those things for ourselves, uh, we can find that the best way of flourishing as individuals and of flourishing as a community. And the second component of that is the notion of responsibility. So you have liberty on the one hand, yes. which is the freedom to choose, and you have responsibility, which is the responsibility for your choices. And those two are essentially reconciled through a framework of laws and norms that then make it possible for us both to be free and to live in an orderly and peaceful society. Am I right? The norms, which have to be in common, are not the big picture norms about the purpose of life, the grand visions which which religions and other philosophies, but the norms are the a sense of ways of getting on with each other. There 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 are protocols of getting on with each other rather than grand visions of life. Have I got that right? Yes, that's right. In many respects, one of the fundamental notions of uh, the, uh, what emerged as liberalism mm. was that there is no summum bonum. There is no single overriding purpose that society as a whole has to impose upon individuals, that each person will have his or her own goals and aspirations in life and should be 
to that extent free to pursue them uh, within the constraints of doing so uh, in a manner that allows us to coexist. And it's that balance mm. of freedom and responsibility that makes for the fundamental difficulty and fragility of what you have called uh, the, the liberal project. In a way, it's not a, it's not a project. It's, it's one of the key parts of being a liberal by the sound of what you're saying. It abandons the concept of a project. The son and bone of the one big idea, yes. Although it does have a place. One big idea. Although individuals and I guess institutions within the liberal society may have their own big idea. Oh, yes. Yes. Any any society will be comprised of many kinds of institutions and associations, some of which simply exist to facilitate. Yes. Yes interaction between individuals and others which pursue particular goals. Liberalism arose in a very particular part of the world at a particular time and, and drew upon, I guess, traditions that are, that are there, like, for example, uh, the idea that individual human beings are all of equal worth, such ideas as yeah. these. These are not natural views. These are, these are contingent, are they not historically? Oh, absolutely. They are historically very contingent, as can be seen from the fact that there are many societies, including some societies which seem to exist for very long periods of time, in which those views do not prevail. So it was, in that sense, a fairly fundamental transformation of the world. But it was equally a transformation of the world which relied on those views being broadly respected. Yes. Um, um, we have to respect each other's dignity if we are to live in a society that reconciles freedom and responsibility. We have to be responsible for our actions mm. uh, because they are our actions rather than being mandated by others. Do, do you think, therefore, that liberalism is a particularly Western Western concept? I often hear, I have heard it said in other places, those are Western ideas, your ideas of human rights and so forth, to imply that it's not only contingent, but unique to one particular way of thinking, one particular world? Or is liberalism fundamentally universal in its, in its, uh, uh, in its ethos? I think it's, to some extent, both, in the sense <laughs> that it arose in a Western cradle. Yes. And has therefore been more naturally accommodated in the Western cultural traditions than in others. On the other hand, it appeals to beliefs and instincts and aspirations that are universal. Um, Now, Mm. uh, Mm. that doesn't mean that we in the West can be complacent about liberalism because we too have had episodes where we've uh, abandoned it entirely. It's uh, perhaps no accident that some of the worst forms of authoritarianism have arisen in the West. If you think about Nazism or Stalinism, these were ideas that were also burst in the West. Uh, And so we certainly cannot be complacent about being instinctively 
liberal. No, no. But there are very deep elements in uh, the, the, the Western tradition, and I would say in the Judeo-Christian tradition, right. that have inclined us to liberalism. Liberalism is really born of two great intellectual currents, one which comes from Athens and one which comes from Jerusalem. From Athens, we got the, the idea of freedom as non-domination. Mm. To be free means that you live according to the rules that you have made. Yes. And from Jerusalem, we got the idea that freedom means being responsible for your actions, that freedom means taking moral accountability for your behavior and living according to moral codes. And those two components have to both be there for freedom and okay. liberalism to be viable. Does liberalism have a future in societies where it doesn't have that, those historical roots, neither Jerusalem nor Athens? Well, I think the even bigger question, Rob, if I may, please, does, does liberalism have a future in the society where it does have those roots? Okay. But where those roots <laughs> have... Uh, have weakened. Yes. Well, I'll ask, can, I ask, can, I, can I ask that question now then? <laughs> yeah. That's a great I, question. I think that, that's a great question. I think that's the even bigger question. And obviously, no society is static. No. Um, and societies and our lives and our beliefs change all the time. And, you know, if you come back to Heraclitus, Greek philosopher, you said that you never step into the same river twice. Yes, yes, yes. There's an element of truth to that. <laughs> there is. But I would say with Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein's famous comment about Heraclitus, that yes, you never step into the same river twice, but a river which lacks any stable banks or canals it's would not be a river at all. Yes, yes. And so that's the fundamental question. What happens to the great river of liberalism with all of its tributaries and many streams? What happens to it when those banks are eroded? And to some extent that goes to inherent contradictions or, or assumptions that underlie uh, liberalism. Liberalism says a very broad range of things are fundamentally a, manner, a, a matter of choice. But you can't have a viable society in which you have liberalism for the liberals and cannibalism for the cannibals. The, can, the liberals like eating pizza and the cannibals like eating liberals. <laughs> Eventually, that society yes. collapses. And that's the fundamental problem that we are grappling with at the moment, that we have, precisely because the liberal answer to most issues is tolerance, we have bred a society in which intolerance is eating tolerance. And that is a, a, a very difficult issue for liberals whose strong commitment is to freedom for liberals to deal with. And the only way they can really deal with that is by recognizing, once again, the importance of those underlying social norms that are the banks the river. and canals through which the river 
must flow. Let me introduce myself. I'm Rob Forsyth. This is the Liberalism in Question. My guest today is Henry Ugas. Henry, this means that there still needs to be, its, if not an overarching purpose, an, under, an underholding fundamental morality in a, in a liberal society, if I can put it that way. Yes, indeed. And uh, it's, it's very difficult to find a serious liberal thinker who did not believe that. Yes. Uh, um, in some cases, they more or less took it for granted, but by and large, that was a central and explicit part of their uh, approach to what they believed by liberalism. So mm. if you think of uh, um, uh, 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 Tocqueville, uh, in Tocqueville, wrote at great length about how what made what he called a liberal society, he called it fundamentally an equal society or a democratic society feasible, but he said ultimately it relies on social mores, yes. on, on social internalized social norms. And without those, he thought you would get two sets of enormous threats. One threat being the threat of just civil strife and factionalism, and at the other extreme, the tyranny of the majority, the belief that you would get conformism and consensus and the, 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 the progressive narrowing of the scope for diverse opinions to be expressed. He thought you needed a very strong bedrock mm. of social norms for, the, for that to be avoided. And what has happened historically, rightly or wrongly, is that we've tended to downplay the significance of that bedrock of social norms. I think because we just took it for granted that all reasonable people think this way, when of course the, the bedrock is, again, in some sense, historically contingent. Well, it was partly that, but it was also partly the other great component of the liberal belief. And this, I think, truly was a liberal project to the extent to which you can point to such a thing, uh, was the belief that education would solve every problem. Oh, yes. So, <laughs> uh, so if you yes. go, yes. If, if you go from, from, from Locke to Montesquieu, to, of course, Rousseau, if we want to class Rousseau as a, as a liberal, through to Tocqueville and John Stuart Mill. Uh, all of them had this fundamental belief that a society in which everyone was well-educated would be a tolerant now, liberal society. Now, you've worked in many universities and high-powered organisations. Were they right? No, I think they were fundamentally wrong. <laughs> I and, thought you might say that. <laughs> and and uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that, that, that it's inevitable, <laughs> but I think you have to recognise that a couple of things. The, the first is that it simply isn't true as a matter of necessity that people who are educated are more tolerant and liberal than People not, who are not. not not in the universities I've seen lately. I can tell you that. No, 
and and in part that's 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 for obvious and understandable reasons. One simple fact of it is that that people who are highly educated tend to be more attached to their own ideas. Yes, they tend to believe that their own ideas are more likely to be correct than mm. people who, in a sense, have been less educated. Uh, Theodore Adorno, who many of your listeners would dislike, but for whom I have a, a degree of fondness, who was a German critical philosopher who came originally from the Marxist tradition, but I think was only very loosely uh, a Marxist. But Adorno used to talk about the curse of the half-educated, <laughs> that, that they were that they were educated enough to be strongly committed to what they believed, but not quite educated enough to realize the limits yes. of human knowledge and of their own knowledge relative to that endless pool of knowledge that is the world. And so there's a vast, a vast number of studies in social psychology which show that educated people handle disagreement more poorly than less educated people because they handle cognitive dissonance more poorly. They're less, they're, they're, they're less capable yes. of coping with it. And the second element of weakness in that argument is that it fails to distinguish between education and culture. Mm. And that ultimately the bedrock of a liberal society is not a liberal education, but a liberal culture. And you can progress education a great deal whilst eroding liberalism's cultural foundations. That's very helpful. I mean, not, not, not entirely encouraging, but very helpful nonetheless. <laughs> is, is not well, one I think great... to, be a, to, to be a liberal is to be an optimist about human beings and a pessimist about humanity. And that is, in a sense, where we, where we come from. Um, we have to be optimistic about human beings in the sense of having confidence in their ability to live freely and be responsible. And yet we're pessimistic about what happens when they interact because we're always fearful that new forms of tyranny will arise, that new forms of oppression will arise, and that we'll succumb to them. I, there's something also about liberalism that's coming out in, in, in this series, that liberalism is, is not a perfectionist view of the world. It's not, a, not an idealistic view of the world. It, it understands compromise and imperfections will be part of the human condition rather than there's a program, if only we could do it, would eliminate yes. evil and suffering. Yes. Can we comment further on that, uh, Henry? Oh, yes. I mean, liberalism is almost inherently as a, 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 a rejection of utopianism. Yes. Because utopianism is the belief that uh, somehow we can uh, recreate uh, paradise on earth. And, uh, uh, and, and that requires uh, for any viable paradisical project that we eliminate our differences, that we all share the same goals, mm. that we 
find ways of avoiding conflict and and so can live in blissful harmony with all scarcity abolished. That is not the road to heaven, that is the road to hell. Yes. I'm going to say and that has been the historical experience. I'm just going to say surely all utopianism has to be based upon violence. Well in order to get the new brand new world you've got to bring it about violently. Yes. And that's what we're yes, seeing with communism right. and uh, yes. Nazism, yes. the French yes. the terror French terror. Yes. Yeah. Can I can because I move essentially liberalism sorry, because utopianism yes. involves remolding humanity and remaking it into into the into something new, the new man yes. of of the Soviet era or the Aryan of Nazism, whatever it may be. And and so there's both uh, a violent break uh, and a goal which justifies the violence that is inflicted so as to make that break. Can I jump to today? Do you see any danger signs of that today in the West? I'm thinking of one level understandable moral moral concerns about about discrimination, about in, in about inequality, about sexism, about racism. These are some of the big moral concerns, at least of the of the public West, of the progressive West. Do you see any dangers in this, or is are they fairly benign these movements? Utopianism has always sprung from and catered to or responded to a, a deep sense of social injustice mm. of one kind or another. And it's always held out to those who feel that the world is unjust, which, which it is, um, has held out the promise of uh, remaking the world into a perfect form. And uh, to that, I think the answer of, of liberalism is twofold. It's on the one hand that, yes, we can always do better, mm. and that liberalism itself and a liberal society is a way of experimenting with ways and means of trying to do better and of encouraging and permitting not merely social progress, but also moral and ethical yes. Yes. and progress. And, and that has, in fact, happened over time. Mm. And so that's the first component to it. And the second component to it is the component or the note of caution, uh, that, 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 that perfection is not of this world, that human beings are fallible, that aspirations and great dreams may lead to great horrors. And so that we need to be measured in what we do and measured in our expectations of what can be achieved. And so it's the combination of those two that I think is the answer to the pressures that we now face. Many of these pressures seem to me to uh, be uh, immoderate and illiberal uh, and to create uh, 
dangers not only for society as such, but also for uh, those who who suffer at its hands. Yes, that they will not achieve those solutions; that they will merely result in disappointments, and that they will do so, causing a great deal of harm along the way. It's not one of liberalism's problems. Is it's not. <laughs> Because of its nature, its very nature of bringing into attention to things, freedom and responsibility, its awareness of the imperfection of humanity, um, it's kind of, uh, it's hard to actively defend against ideals. And, and often these days lacking, I think, liberalism is lacking, strong public defence in the world. It's, it's either taken for granted and therefore become complacent, or it's being blamed for a whole range of, of uh, economic and other troubles. And hence, one does feel that at the moment it's not quite as, it's more under threat than it's been. Do, do you think that's right? Yes, I do. Uh, I'm, I'm, if I'm, if I sound slightly ambivalent about that, it's because. You're very liberal, <laughs> being yeah, very well, balanced. Uh, well, it's, it's yes. Um, it's, I would say, for two reasons. First, my instinctive liberalism, but also, secondly, that, that um, as you know, uh, liberalism has faced many acute challenges in the past. Uh, and we, we tend to, uh, to be very invested in the present uh, and hence to forget what has come before, but I am certainly, and you may well be old enough to remember the pressures liberalism came under in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I am. When, yeah, when many places in the world, including in where, where I, am, I am now in France, we faced uh, movements that were extremely illiberal and indeed faced uh, uh, a great wave of, of, of terrorism and of civil unrest. Um, uh, and yet, uh, mm. liberalism has, for all that, shown a considerable degree of resilience, uh, though I agree that that resilience is yet again uh, being tested. Uh, I, I think that natural selection has made us all into hypochondriacs. <laughs> uh, and hypochondria is a, is, is, is a, is a very is a very healthy uh, reaction, a very healthy instinct to have. But it makes us hypochondriacs uh, both about our underlying uh, physical well-being but also about the social and political and moral environment in which we live. We always believe that society is on the verge of collapse, that young people don't really understand the values that we uh, uh, have uh, uh, lived by and which are their bequests and one of their most important bequests, and that without us at the helm, the world will deteriorate before 
the eyes of those who inherited. And sometimes that is the case. Uh, sometimes that isn't. And we can hope that those self-correcting forces that are themselves a component of a liberal open society, those self-componing mechanisms will come into play. Yes, that's very moderately optimistic, if I can put it like that. Moderately optimistic. <laughs> Henry, uh, Henry Ogos, you're, you're living in Paris. You've spent some time in Paris before in, in an earlier life. Um, you've also spent some time in the United States. Um, what, what's particular, if anything, about liberalism in Australia? How, how many particular local characteristics you, you, you can think of? Yeah, well, Australian liberalism is a curious beast um, in many, many respects. Uh, because uh, on the one hand, uh, Australia is obviously a society where people uh, more or less enjoy having rules and having rules made for them. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, uh, mock rules uh, are openly critical of them. Equally, Australia is a society which sets itself the very high aspirations in terms of social progress yes. and great, if often unarticulated ideals. And on the other hand, it's historically actually quite conservative. Uh, and uh, accommodates change uh, without necessarily glorifying it or raising it into uh, an object of adoration for its own sake. And one of the, I think, successes of Australian society is the way it manages to keep those somewhat paradoxical elements yes, going at once. To some extent, I wonder whether that's because it hasn't been, at least, uh, a particularly intellectual society. I was just going to uh, raise that. I was going to raise that. Yes, it, it, yes it's, it's, uh, it's been a society that, uh, I mean, Albert Martin famously said about Australian laborism that it was socialism without doctrine. But I think you could equally say that about Australian liberalism, yeah. that it's liberalism without doctrine. Uh, and because neither have been particularly doctrinaire, or ideological, yeah. uh, though they both had their share of doctrinaires and ideologues. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, but they've neither been, neither has really been that. And the Australian ethos hasn't either invited that or welcomed that. Then perhaps that has made it possible for these paradoxical elements to coexist in a way that's difficult or that's been very difficult elsewhere. 
I always think it's striking that uh, if you look at uh, the world from a historical perspective, the rise of uh, great intellectual leaders uh, often leads to conflict and chaos. So it's undoubtedly the case that James I was the most intellectual monarch in British history. Yet it's equally true that he laid the groundwork yes. for the well, disastrous civil war. And Richelieu was an extraordinarily cultured and intellectual man. Yet the revolution would probably not have occurred without great thinkers such as Henri IV and Richelieu. And you can go on and on in, in that vein. Whereas uh, ultimately uh, countries that have been blessed with a political culture that doesn't ideologize as much, that doesn't intellectualize as much, uh, may have been better able to muddle through. For those of us who are passionate about ideas or at least very interested in them and believe in them very strongly and think that they're a terrific thing to have and wish we were more highly valued, that's a bit of a letdown and a disappointment. But maybe our disappointment is for the greater good of society as a whole. Henry Ugas, on that remarkably humble conclusion, I want to thank you so much for what's been a very illuminating and ideas-filled liberalism in question. This has been another podcast from the Centre for Independent Studies. For decades, the CIS has been an independent voice working to deliver evidence-based policy within a classical liberal framework. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our cause. Head to cis.org.au to see how you can get involved. I'm Rob Forsyth. Thank you for listening.